take your copy of God's Word this morning, open it again to uh, <clears throat> the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, we'll go through uh, chapter 2, verse 10 today. If you're using uh, one of the uh, pew Bibles, one of the Bibles under your seats, that should be on page uh, 1028, 1029, right in there. I hate fire ants. I hate, I hate ants, period. I just I don't like them. We have them. They're those little uh, sugar ants or whatever you want to call them are, are all over our kitchen right now. And we can't get rid of the stinking things. And it's driving me crazy. Um, but I'd rather have those than fire ants in the house. This week uh, or last week, I learned a horrifying fact about fire ants uh, that in a flood, Fire ants can, yeah, I already hear, oh yeah, somebody else read that article too. Fire ants in a flood can bond together, join together, and survive as a colony in a flood. By, by bonding their bodies together, they create this waterproof kind of raft and they can survive a flood. So if you weren't terrified of fire ants before, you'd be terrified of fire ants now. It's scary, but at the same time, there's something, something kind of neat, kind of cool about that, that an entire colony of little insects who otherwise on their own are fairly vulnerable, it's not too hard to squish an ant, but that they can, uh, in coming together, hold on to one another in, in such a way and with such strength that they as a colony can survive uh, massive floods and other sorts of damage and things like that. There are things that the body does extremely well together. Now, last week, we looked in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, at the corporate command to individual holiness. Peter commanding the entire church as individuals to pursue holiness, to pursue godly living. This week, today, we're going to look at two corporate commands that Peter gives to the body that they must do not as individuals, but that they must do together. Things that as the body, they must do together. And we're also going to see the divine result of doing that. What happens when the body of Christ, when believers come together in obedience to do the things that God has commanded them to do. Let us then, as we do, trusting you found your place, uh, stand together as we read God's word. First Peter chapter one, verse uh, beginning in verse 22, going through chapter two, verse 10. Here, Peter writes. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and, it's, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father God, as we come to you, your people, submitting ourselves and our lives to your word, would you guide and and direct our time in your word together? God, giving us eyes to see what is true, ears to hear the truth, and hearts that, that long to respond in faith and obedience to what you're commanding us. God, use me as your servant. Humble me this morning. Lead me to speak only the words that you have given. God, you be glorified. Jesus, you be magnified and exalted among us. Holy Spirit, guide our time of worship in the word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Last week, we looked at three different commands, three different imperatives that Peter gives to the church uh, that individually they must then carry out and be obedient to. And in a similar way, in this passage, Peter gives two more imperatives, two more commands to the church that they must do, not as individuals, but corporately, all together. And the first is this, that they are called to love God's people. As God's people, we are made to love one another. This is the first command that we see in verse uh, 22. The imperative here in this place, uh, the, the command that Peter uses, is love one another fervently from a pure heart. The imperative, this command, is qualified both in its source and in its manner. That is, where the command comes from, why we do it, and and the manner, the way in which we do it. The source of the command, the source of fulfilling this command to love one another is from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The hearts of believers are hearts that have been purified in the same manner that our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. Peter says that in verse 22, he begins this way, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Obedience to the truth is uh, Peter's way of speaking about conversion. Obedience to the truth is, is this, it is hearing the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins and mine and was raised from the dead and responding to it in obedience by placing our faith in Christ that he might save us, that, that our sins would be paid for by him. That's the source of our love for one another, by hearts that have been purified by our obedience to Jesus. But then there's the manner, there's the way in which we love one another. Peter says we do this fervently, eagerly, earnestly. The Greek word that he uses here is the Greek word ektenos. That doesn't mean anything to you, but its meaning does. This Greek word that Peter uses for fervently, eagerly, earnestly carries the, the weight of or the sense of persevering or striving toward a goal with great intensity. As we were looking at this passage as a a staff this week, Becky Henderson said she had heard it once said before that that word fervently, earnestly, uh, uh, was once explained to her as a racehorse striving toward the finish line. Muscles in its neck bulging, veins pulsing with blood, and a horse striving for the finish line. Love one another fervently, Peter says, with intensity. There's intentionality and a concerted effort. There's even an enthusiasm in the kind of love that believers are to have for one another in the body. 
And so Peter reminds the church in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, just a page over or so. Above all, keep loving, a one, no, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter gives a clear command to the church to love one another earnestly, fervently, intentionally, intensely. And he tells us that it is a result of obedience to the gospel. We've already seen this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. He tells us that this is the way in which we uh, begin to, or this is the sort of the source, the fountain of our love for one another, our obedience to the gospel. He's saying, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. He's also saying, having purified your hearts for a pure brotherly love. I will remind us at this point of the obedience that Peter has already spoken of in chapter 1, verse 2. Where he says that we have been saved, we have been chosen by God for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Friends, that's the result and the purpose of God's work in salvation. To make us obedient to Jesus. And to be forgiven and spiritually cleansed by his blood. Obedience to Jesus begins with obedience to the good news about Jesus. The good news that he died in our place and was raised from the dead. Obedience to Jesus doesn't happen apart from trusting him as Savior, trusting him as Lord, turning from your sin and making him king. And in so doing, in believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we're then led to a sincere brotherly love, Peter says. Or uh, some of your translations may say a sincere love for the brethren, a sincere, honest love for other believers especially to those who are uh, committed together in the same local church in the way that the members of this church are. That word sincere that Peter uses means literally without hypocrisy. Sincere love is love without a mask. So we love one another intensely, intently, on purpose, with enthusiasm, and not hiding anything. It's a command. comes by way of having obeyed the gospel and our souls been purified in that way. And it's also the result of a new spiritual life that we're given in Christ. Peter says here in verse 23, since you have been born again. So love one another earnestly since because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is to say that you cannot love like God is calling you to love unless you have been changed by something else or by someone else. You cannot love the way that God has intended you to love other believers apart from being born again by the word of God. Peter plays again. Did you catch this on this perishable, imperishable theme of contrast that that he has been sort of playing on already in this first chapter? I'll remind us of chapter 1, verse 4, where he speaks of an imperishable inheritance that we have been saved for and that is waiting for us. Chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about gold, which perishes, though it's tested by fire, is, is worthless compared to the value of our faith that comes as a result of suffering. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says that we have not been ransomed, we've not been saved from the feudal ways of our forefathers by such petty things as silver or gold, perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. The new birth does not come as a result of temporary physical processes. New birth in Christ doesn't come by anything that your fickle heart has done. It comes by the word of God which never fails and never fades. Peter here quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 and 8. He says, All flesh is like grass, 
in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This eternal, everlasting word, the gospel, the scriptures that we have, is the gospel, the same gospel that was preached to the early church. It's the gospel that they heard and obeyed. It's the gospel that purified their hearts and caused them to be born again so that they can love one another with fervor, with intensity. So then church, we, in response to God's word here, because we have been rescued by Jesus to love his people, to love the body of believers, let us then be obedient to the command of God and love each other well. It's fair to say that love is far more than than mere politeness or friendliness towards others. If I was just polite and friendly toward my wife, she would not think that I loved her very well. Love, amen. Love, and those of you that have been married for many years know this, love is hard work. Love requires... Boy, y'all have been working hard apparently in your marriage. Amen. Love requires... (laughs) There are some times when you're preaching, you get responses you are not prepared for. You know this, that love, based on your response, amen, brother, it's hard work. You know... That love requires a commitment to the benefit of another. It it requires, it it, it comes at a cost to our own selves and our own desires for ourselves. Love is not without sacrifice. And in this way, love is inherently inconvenient. Let me say that again. Love is inherently inconvenient. If you tell someone that you love them and you never find yourself inconvenienced by them, let me say, you are certainly not loving them well, may not be loving them at all. And yet God, through his servant Peter, commands us to inconvenience and to sacrifice of ourselves for fellow believers with considerable effort, like a horse striving for a finish line. This means not just loving and caring about people that you know well in the church, not just the people that are in your Sunday school class or your small group or in the same age demographic as you, but to inconvenience yourself to sincerely care for those who are not like you, who are part of a different Sunday school class or a small group, to go out of your way to learn people's names and, and even more to learn their kids' names in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was killed in a concentration camp under the Nazi regime, wrote this in his book, Life Together. He said, the brother is a burden to the Christian precisely because he is a Christian. For the pagan, for the non-believer, the other person never becomes a burden at all. He simply sidesteps every burden that others may impose upon him. Love is inherently inconvenient. Love is inherently sacrificial. And Peter says to the church, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You may be wondering, what are some ways that I can begin to obey this command today? To love my church earnestly from a pure heart. Here are four, here are four ways and, and the list could go on. Number one, today, right now, after church, after worship this morning, take someone you don't know or don't know well in our church to lunch. Take someone you don't know or don't know well, take them to lunch today. Change whatever plans you had for right after the service. Get together with somebody and go to lunch. Get to know someone. Secondly, Call someone who's, been, who's missing from church today or from your Sunday school class. Call them this week. Where are you at, brother? Where are you at, sister? We missed you this morning. Is everything okay? How can I pray for you? What can I do for you? Do you need help? Third, 
Younger people, and, and this includes people that are like 40 years and younger, maybe even 60 years and younger, I don't know. Find a senior adult or an older couple in our church and offer your assistance with needs around their home. Just say, hey, if you ever need anything, holler at me. I'd love to help. Find a younger family. If you're older, find a younger family and ask how you can be praying for them. How you can maybe help them or be a sounding board for parenting questions or things like that. Ask if you can serve them in any way. Or go a step even further. And don't just do something once or twice. But begin now to set up a regular time with a younger or, or, or less mature person in their faith in our church. To meet together on a regular basis. Weekly. Maybe every other week. To read God's, to read God's word and pray together. Love one another by discipling each other. Investing your life. Inconveniencing yourself and your schedule for the benefit of another. Church, we need to start obeying this command today. Continue obeying this command today. With a new sense of intentionality and purpose. We need to do the hard work of loving our brothers and sisters in this church. Expecting nothing in return. And doing it as a matter of our worship and obedience to Christ. Peter says, love one another fervently. From a pure heart. That's the first command. That people of God love God's people. Secondly, they long for God's word. They long for God's word. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter goes on. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for, crave, desire the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Longing for God's word. As a people, as a, as a church, doesn't happen by accident. It happens, though, as hearts are set on purity. Longing for God's word happens as we set our hearts on purity. Peter says, setting aside all of these things, malice, evil, deceit, cunning, hypocrisy, envy, slander, evil... Loving one another with a sincere and a fervent heart cannot happen if this list of things that Peter says to put off are not set aside in our own lives. If we have malice in our heart, evil, ill will toward others, especially brothers and sisters in the church, we cannot, accept to, uh, cannot expect to have a longing for God's word as we are living the antithesis of love. He says, put away deceit and cunning, right? There's no love in being dishonest or insincere. There's no love in being manipulative. He says, put away hypocrisy. There's no love in wearing a mask and expecting other people to, to, to see the real you and be able to love the real you in return. Peter says, put off envy. Envy is wanting something that someone else has. Maybe not that exact thing. That would be covetousness. But envy is just, boy, so-and-so has that. And I'd really like to have some of that too. Envy begets competition. It suppresses the deference for others that love commands. Peter says, put away slander and evil speech. These things tear down. They don't edify. They destroy the character of others, the, the reputation of others. They, they chip away at the heart, at the, the confidence in Christ that others have. Peter says, put it away so that you can long for the pure milk of the word. Longing for God's word happens as hearts are set on purity, but it's also a command. There's a command here. This is verse 2. As newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That's a command, not a suggestion. Right? Not, a, not a, hey, hey, you might want to think about this this week, about you know, enjoying God's word. No, Peter commands it. Long for it. Crave it. Desire God's word. 
That word long for, it means to have a strong craving. Women who have been pregnant may be able to identify with that. I can too. I like Cheetos and I often have a craving for Cheetos. This word to long for, it means to, be, to, 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 to have a desire or a craving for something in the same manner, and Peter uses this illustration, uh, same manner and intensity as a newborn craves milk. Peter's not saying that the church are infants. He's not saying that they're immature. But instead, he's using infancy as an illustration. So that in the same way, newborn babies crave a mother's milk to live and to grow and to be strengthened by consuming it. So also Christians should crave and desire more of the very thing that has saved them so that they might also grow and mature in the salvation that it delivers. Now, in the English Standard Version, which is the translation that that I often most often preach from, What Peter says is translated this way, that that you would long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, if you have a different translation, it may say something a little bit different. The word that is translated spiritual here is the Greek word logikon. And logikon has a, the root of that word has a connection to the other Greek word logos, which means word, which is often referred, which is in the gospel of John referred to as Jesus, as the incarnate word. Logikon can mean reasonable or pertaining to the logos, pertaining to the word. And in this way, the Christian Standard Bible, the King James Version, and the New American Standard Bible all translate the passage this way. Long for the pure milk of the word. And I think that's the better translation. Because it then connects us back to, makes a clear tie to verses 22 through 25. And the living and abiding word of God that is the gospel of Jesus, which has caused us to be born again. Peter then, I would say, is implying that this kind of longing, this kind of craving for the milk of the word, the milk that is God's word, is natural and normal for Christians. He says, since you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good, you long for God's word if you've tasted the goodness of him. You long for more of God to speak into your life if you have seen his grace. The assumption at play here is that the Christians to whom Peter is writing, uh, and even the Christians today, are Christians because we have, just as he said, tasted and seen the goodness and the love and justice and mercy of God in Jesus' death for us. Peter's not setting a condition here like, you can expect to long for the word if you've tasted that the Lord is good, uh, as, as sort of assuming that the Christians he's writing to or those that he's writing to have not actually tasted the grace of God. No, he's saying this assuming they already have. He's making a declaration. Because you've tasted that the Lord is good, long for the milk of the word. Brother, sister, follower of Jesus, if you know God's grace because you've trusted in Jesus as you heard the good news of his death in your place and his resurrection, then it ought to be your natural reaction to want more of the very thing that has saved you and brought you near to God. The word of God transforms our hearts to love and to long for more of the word of God in the same way that, our, that apart from Christ, our sinful, degenerate hearts lead us to love sin and to love more of sin. Peter is here effectively saying then, church, long for, crave, desire more of the very thing that saved and transformed you so that you might be continually transformed, growing in your salvation. Christian, we need to obey this command to long for the word. 
We need to, as a church, as individuals, develop and encourage in ourselves an insatiable hunger for God's word. The Bible is the creator of the universe's very declaration to us about who we really are and about who he is, about what we really need and how we really can have our sins forgiven. Through God's word, the Bible, we know that we need a savior and we know that our savior is God's own son, Jesus. We know from God's word that he paid for our freedom from sin by giving himself to be killed in our place. And then rising from the dead. Christian, you've been born again by believing this word. And you cannot live a new spiritual life without it. Several years ago when I was living in California prior to being married, uh, I was on the pudgier side of fat. And I knew that I needed to make some changes in my lifestyle. And, uh, and I, I'll go and like work out and stuff at the, you know, at, at that time at the gym and the weight room, uh, there that was at the seminary and, and maybe run, uh, on occasion or whatever. But I would always, uh, overcompensate in the dining room for what I had done in the gym. And so I knew that I had to make some changes and then that would, those would, would be dietary changes primarily. So I did something crazy for a whole month. And, the, and those of some of you are going to hear say, you're not crazy. Um, so for a whole month, I decided I was going to be vegetarian. I was just not going to eat meat. Now, I didn't go like full vegan. I, I still ate eggs and cheese because, I mean, you, sometimes you just can't do without eggs and cheese. But so for a whole month, I didn't eat any meat. Now, there was within about a mile of the seminary, both a McDonald's and an In-N-Out burger. Now, given my choice... I would choose In-N-Out. Given my budget, I would choose McDonald's, but that's a different story. But for a whole month, I said no meat. So having no meat meant a lot of times that I would not go to those restaurants where meat was delicious, delicious meat was served so that I would not be tempted to eat it so I could stick to my diet. So it's mostly vegetables and fruit and oatmeal in the morning. God bless you, those that can eat oatmeal every morning. Uh, Fruits in the afternoon, you know, uh, uh, mixed nuts, almonds, that sort of thing for energy. And in the course of a month, the first week, the first week was probably as close to hell as I will ever experience in my life. It was rough, but I made it to week two. And week two is a little bit easier. Week three was even easier. And week four uh, was even delightful. I found myself over the course of this month by changing radically my diet, by giving my body good food, like whole foods, uh, foods that have not been processed and come in a little plastic package, that that not only did I have more energy, not only was I less so on the pudgier side of fat, but I also, my body began to crave those good things. I didn't want to go to In-N-Out. I didn't want to go to McDonald's. I wanted broccoli. I wanted almonds. I wanted right, these things that were good. I developed a craving for things that were good for me. So it is with God's word. We are tempted every day to feast on spiritual McDonald's in and out. On, on Twitter length sound, spiritual sound bites to get us through the day. What we need is the good word of God that causes us to grow up into maturity. And you know what? It takes discipline. It takes work to grow into this because, because God's word is like vegetables and fruit and all of the good things that your, your spiritual body really needs. Now, our spirits crave uh, McDonald's and In-N-Out. But what we need is God's word. So it takes, it takes practice. It takes discipline to be in God's word regularly, 
often on a daily basis. But as you do, coming to it, expecting to hear from God, you will find your heart begin to change. Your desires begin to change. You will find yourself wanting more and more and more of this word because it is changing you. Peter says, long for the word, which means we need to pursue that command with obedience. But an interesting thing begins to happen in the church as we who know and trust Jesus love one another, uh, love one another fervently and, and intensely. And as we as a body begin to together crave more of God's word, as we do those things, God then causes us to live, to exist as his very own people. We begin to live as God's own people. And this we see described in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2. Now in this passage or in this paragraph, this section, there is no command from Peter. There's no do this. There is just uh, the indicative. There is the description of what is happening right now. Peter says, you as living stones are being built up in verse 5. That's the description. That's what happens. As believers love one another, long for God's word, pursue obedience to those commands, they begin to be put together, built up like living stones. In these verses, Peter describes what God does to believers amongst a body of believers with those who follow Jesus as they obey the gospel. And he uses this construction imagery, right? To uh, talking about being, building up a building, A building that is built on, that is founded on Christ as the cornerstone. Look at verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built on Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Jesus, who is a living stone that God has chosen for his redemptive purposes to be the precious cornerstone and foundation of his people, the church. Jesus, the chief cornerstone chosen by God, was rejected by men. Peter cites a scriptural proof of prophetic fulfillment in Jesus' life. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, where Isaiah says, Behold, or God through the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, I am the one who has laid his foundation in Zion. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone uh, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We as believers, trusting in Jesus, are built on the cornerstone that God has chosen. Who is the infinite and eternal Son of God incarnate in the man, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of the building which is the the church. uh, Not the literal church building, but the building that is people who are put together as living stones. We are living stones by means of being born again, according to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And we're put together by God on the cornerstone of Jesus as living stones to be several things. First, a spiritual house. There is here the idea that the church is now now the dwelling place of God's spirit. The church, the body of believers... The hearts of believers are where God's spirit resides. No longer in the tabernacle, no longer in the temple, which are built by hands, ornate and beautiful as they are. God is doing a new thing. He's making his home in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
We're being built up as living stones on Christ, the chief cornerstone, to be a spiritual house, to be also a holy priesthood in verse 4. With the heart of the Christian, with the heart of the believer, as the residing place, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, there is then no need for believers in Jesus to go through a priest for atonement, to go to a priest for confession. You don't need to go, Christian, to another man or another woman to get to God. If you are trusting in Christ, His own Spirit lives within you, and you have direct access to the Father through Jesus because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Now, because of Christ's death in our place, His resurrection from the dead, the gift of the Holy Spirit, all believers have direct access to the Father through Christ. And we comprise a holy priesthood. We don't need a mediator. Christ is the greatest mediator. He's the perfect priest. And He has made all, He has done all of the work that we need for uh, being righteous, for being made right with God. He's already done it all. Just trust Him that you might know the Father. We're built together to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then Peter says to offer spiritual sacrifices. This is the purpose. We're built together so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, we see the connection to holy living here, I think. The sacrifices of the believer are spiritual in nature, having to do primarily with the renewal of our hearts, the renewal of our minds through repentance and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us to help us to live a holy life. The sacrifices we offer are not bulls and goats and rams for the atonement of our sin. Christ has already been the perfect sacrifice. He has made that sacrifice, presented that sacrifice to the Father so that we might not ever have to slaughter another animal for the forgiveness of our sins again. But that doesn't mean that we don't live a life of sacrifice after trusting Jesus. The life of sacrifice after trusting Jesus is a sacrifice of self, giving up my will, giving up my desires for God's will and for God's desires. A life of sacrifice is a holy life. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verses 15 and 16 can say this. Through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are as believers built Brick by brick, piece by piece, living stone upon living stone, resting on the chief cornerstone that is Christ to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And in so doing, we receive, by trusting in Christ, honor for our faith. We receive honor, verses 7 and 8. Peter there says, The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There is, we see, a distinct honor and confidence that comes in knowing that you are being built on the chosen and precious foundation that is Jesus. There's a distinct honor and confidence in knowing that. That God has chosen you, He has saved you, that He might that you might be built on His Son. Just think about that. There's honor in that. Oh God, that you would think on me that way. That you would set your love on me that way to be built on your son. What an honor, God, thank you. What confidence we have in knowing the foundation that we are built upon. But notice this too, that the, for the one who does not believe, there is not honor, but shame and stumbling. 
The honor for believers is in return for our faith, faith in Jesus, resting our lives on him. And the honor continues for believers in becoming God's people. As we're built together on the foundation that is Christ, we receive honor for our faith and we become God's people. Verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This phrase, this list of who we are as God's people, of who believers are as God's people, chosen, kingdom of priests, holy nation, people for God's possession, is a citation, it's an allusion to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the people of Israel have just been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they're now gathered around Mount Sinai as Moses uh, is preparing to go up to the top of the mountain to receive uh, God's word, his instruction. And there God says to his people that they will be, to Israel, that they will be a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And much of this is further affirmation of what Peter has already said in verse 5 of chapter 2 that we looked at. There were living stones being uh, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. But catch this. Peter is taking a promise of God to Israel in the Old Testament in Exodus 19. And now he's applying that promise to the church, to Christians who are not just Jews, who are not just from the nation of Israel. They're Jews and Gentiles. And from what we know from the context of 1 Peter and uh, of Peter's letter and the the area that he was writing it to, we can, it's safe to assume that the majority, if not all of the believers that he is writing to were not Jews, but were Gentiles. And now Peter is using Israelite language for the church. Peter is saying explicitly that the church is, like Israel was, the true covenant people of God. God's people have never been, in the history of the world, defined by national borders. Never. God's people have never been defined by national borders, but by God's covenant promises. For national Israel, the promise of God in the Old Testament was that they would be a blessing to the nations and that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. But then as Jesus, the Messiah, is born, a Jewish man dies in the place of sinners, raised for the forgiveness of sins, the blessing to the nations through Israel is fulfilled. And the nations then have the ability to place their faith in Christ. So Christians, believers, then we do not replace Israel as a nation, but believers of all nationalities, Jew, Gentile, American, European, African, Asian, believers of all nationalities do comprise the true covenant people of God now because we're the recipients of his promises to us in Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles are now recipients of God's favor and forgiveness through Jesus. And as God's people, in verse 10, we had the distinct privilege of receiving his mercy. Here in this verse, Peter alludes to Hosea, the prophet of Hosea. There's like 15 Old Testament references in the passage we just looked at today. Peter alludes to the prophet Hosea in chapter 2, verse 23. You may remember the prophet Hosea was called by God to go and marry a prostitute. Thanks, God. And to have children with her and to name the children with her, not my people and no mercy. 
in doing this, God was calling Hosea to, to enact uh, the, the kind of relationship that God and Israel had. Hosea, in this marriage, plays the part of God. Uh, his wife, his prostitute wife, Gomer, playing the people of Israel, who are constantly going after other gods, uh, worshiping idols, uh, neglecting the relationship. They're called to be God's people. And the result of that union are a people who are not God's people and people who have not received his mercy. But over the course of Hosea, we see the significance of what God is doing in Hosea's life was to bring a sinful, unrepentant, rebellious people back to himself. He was going to woo his people back. And over the course of Hosea, God promises to do that. And though in Hosea, God does punish his people for their rebellion, he also, right, in promising to win them back, makes good on their promise or makes good on his promise to them. So for the church, for Christians, the new covenant people of God, the implication is that in Christ, we have been wooed by God. We have been won over by God to turn from our sin, to turn from our rebellion, to turn from our idolatry, whatever it is that we might be worshiping, and instead follow the Son, Jesus, to turn from our sin, and in doing so, receive God's mercy and His blessings as His people once again. There's a distinct honor, there's a distinct confidence that comes in knowing that we are built on the foundation of Christ that we have received God's mercy, that we are being built up to be a, a, a kingdom of priests and a, a chosen people, a holy nation. For believers, there's much hope and encouragement in this passage. But for the non-believer, you who are not trusting Christ, I would expect that you do not find yourself particularly encouraged here because of what the text is saying about you and your heart and your relationship to God. Non-believers, those who are not yet Christians are now in a very hard and a precarious place. They continue to walk in their disobedience. Peter says in verse 7, The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone, or has become the chief cornerstone, and it's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who don't know Jesus continue to trip over him in disobedience not believing the gospel, not trusting Jesus, are stumbling over Christ and in stumbling over Him, not trusting Him, not giving their lives to Him, being offended by Him and the claims that He makes. In their continual stumble, they continue to prove that they are not God's people and they are not the recipients of His mercy. Non-believers are in a hard and precarious place when confronted with the gospel. Now, most of us in our life will stumble on Christ at some point. Now, there's, but there's a difference between stumbling, uh, and, or there's a difference between uh, <clears throat> stumbling on Christ and, and fully rejecting Christ in some sense. In one way, the, the gospel is, is always offensive to our personal sensibilities. The gospel tells us that we're sinners that we can't fix the problems in our life. The gospel tells us that we are the problems in our life. We're the source of those problems. And that in our own strength, we will never be able to break out of that cycle of, of brokenness, of hurt, of pain. But that God has intervened on our behalf. 
even though we were sinful, even though we rebelled against him and brought all this brokenness into our lives and the lives of those around us, God has stepped in, in his son, to take the penalty for our sin and rebellion against him. And to make a way through trusting Jesus, giving our lives to him, to begin to be reconciled to God, to to return to God's design for our lives, to trust him again that he might put us back together. Now, when faced with the gospel... That way, oftentimes we say, nope, I got it. Not a problem. I don't need God to fix my issues. The gospel is offensive to us. It insults us. It insults our independence. But for the one who knows he's got a problem, and he knows he can't find any way out, the rock of Jesus upon which he stumbles is a blessed rock upon which to stumble. Because Jesus says, hey, give me your problems. I'll take care of it. I'm not going to make it all better immediately, right? But I'm going to begin to fix these things, right? Rest your life on me. And I'll begin to build you up. as part of the spiritual house that I am building. The gospel causes many people to, to stumble. Some of us, though, in faith, happen to land upon the cornerstone. Other of us, others of us, in taking offense, being insulted by it, run the opposite direction, continue to trip over it, never trust it. And what we do is continue to separate ourselves further and further and further and further and further, hardening our heart every time we trip on the gospel against the God who has sent his own son to save us. Non-believers in a hard and precarious place. Believers have a distinct honor and confidence that comes in knowing we are built on Christ. So then we, church, as people who belong to God, who are God's people, trusting in Jesus, who know his mercy, have received his mercy, knowing what it is to be built up as the people of God and the distinct honor and privilege that there is in that, we should then stop at nothing to draw others to Jesus. Knowing the honor, the comfort, the confidence there is in knowing Christ and setting that against Setting that against the, the, the ignorance, the uh, destiny of hell and separation from God that non-believers have. We, in knowing what we have received from God, should stop at nothing to draw others to Jesus. And in this way, we who are being built up as living stones on the chief cornerstone that is Christ, we become a living witness to the goodness of the gospel, to a world that needs to see it. I said before in these last few verses, verses 4 through 10, that there's no imperative, there's no command uh, that, that Peter is giving to the church. But I think there is a command that comes out of the application of this, that we share the gospel with reckless abandon to those who are hurting, those who are walking in sin, those who are continuing to rebel against God, because we know the benefit of receiving God's mercy. We know what it is to have a family of believers that love one another fervently. And we know the benefits of longing for God's word that we grow up in salvation, in maturity, growing closer to Christ, having our will and our desires transformed to match his. Knowing all of the benefits that come with being a part of God's people, we must get the gospel to those who don't know Christ at any and all costs. Let's pray.